Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Saturday, May the 20th, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, a conversation with the journalist Joe Eskenazi of Mission Local, a San Francisco newspaper online, about the Banco Brown case and San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. Plus, my thoughts on the San Francisco District Attorney and the Banco Brown case and the tenor in San Francisco around what happened to Banco Brown. All of that coming up next. Dear listener, welcome to this brand new edition of the Political Daily Podcast of yours truly, Omar Moore here. And yes, it is Saturday, my goodness gracious me. I do want to thank you for coming along and joining me here on this Saturday. And this is the podcast where you are, as always, invited to think differently. It's great to have you here. Thank you, thank you so very much indeed for sparing some time. Whenever you happen to be listening to this particular episode of the Politocrat Daily Podcast, it's really great to have you aboard, and I truly appreciate you. Now, on this episode, dear listener, a conversation with the journalist Joe Eskenazi. He's a journalist here in San Francisco, and he writes for a San Francisco online newspaper entitled Mission Local. And you really need to read that newspaper online. I hope that you do. I'll be talking to Joe about the Banco Brown case, but more specifically about the San Francisco District Attorney, Brooke Jenkins. So stay tuned for that. Plus, I'll have my thoughts a little bit later on about the San Francisco District Attorney, as well as the general tenor that I am getting, at least here in San Francisco, from some quarters anyway, about Banco Brown and how people feel about Banco Brown and what happened to Banco Brown. And I want to talk a bit about that. So that's what's coming up. I'm going to take a break now and I'll come right back and we'll have a conversation with Joe Eskenazi of Mission Local. That's coming up right after this. This edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast, dear listeners, uh, with me is Joe Eskenazi. He is the managing editor and columnist for Mission Local, a local newspaper here in San Francisco, California. He writes on a number of issues, and he's written a lot about the Banco Brown case and about the San Francisco District Attorney, Brooke Jenkins. Welcome, Joe. Welcome to the Politocrat Daily Podcast. Thank you for having me on the show, Omar. You're most welcome, Joe. Thank you very much indeed for being here. It's great to have you here. Um, I, I wanted to start by asking you about Brooke Jenkins to give the listeners a little bit of background into how, first of all, for those who listen who aren't from San Francisco, how Brooke Jenkins became the district attorney here in San Francisco. Uh, Brooke Jenkins uh, is a former prosecutor in the office for... Uh, you know, a good amount of time. Brooke Jenkins is uh, is about forty years old and and uh, joined as a very young prosecutor, and uh, and had worked her way up the ranks there in the office. Uh, 
she very publicly broke with her former boss, Chesa Boudin, uh, coming out against him in an uh, article in the newspaper record here, The Chronicle, and then subsequently becoming the, uh, uh, I guess, the, the public face of the recall movement. After Chesa Boudin was successfully recalled, uh, you know, other names were floated around as to who would be appointed district attorney. But in the end, it was Brooke Jenkins herself, uh, who had only moved to the city, you know, the November. <laughs> you know, months before uh, the recall uh, and, uh, you know, is, is not a traditional, um, you know, office holder in San Francisco as a result of that, a city where, you know, we are fairly provincial and, you know, where did you go to school are questions that are relevant. Uh, so she became district attorney uh, in summer of last year, I believe July of last year, and, you know, has taken many steps to undo some of the things that Chesa Boudin did. Uh, most notably, she has uh, dropped the charges against uh, all but one of the police officers that uh, Chesa Boudin had uh, charged and uh, seems to be in the process of, uh, of looking for an out with the final one, uh, you know, inquiring as to the health of the victim who died several years after the shooting. And it, it really does feel like uh, that one is uh, on life support as well. Wow. Wow. Uh, and, and I'd like to think I'm pretty well informed about what goes on here locally, but I did not know that she was undoing every one of these uh, situations with these with these police. That I was not aware of to that extent. So I'm glad that um, um, that you've mentioned that, and I'm sure listeners will appreciate the background that you've given, uh, Joe, on this. Mm-hmm. Now that she has been District Attorney Brooke Jenkins now for just uh, almost a, a year, uh, we're coming mm-hmm. up on a year, um, one of the things that you have written about in Mission Local are, and, and most recently as well, are some of the things that she's done ethically. Um, in fact, you have posited in several of your stories that what she's done is tantamount to a crime in, in and of itself, according to statutes here in California. Before we get to talking about Banco Brown, can you talk a little bit about some of the things you've reported regarding some of her past situations that have have people of a legal realm like myself mm-hmm. as an attorney and other attorneys scratching their heads? Well, I think what you're referring to is that uh, as a short timer in the office, uh, she emailed uh, an unredacted rap sheet for a serial felon to a, a colleague who was also a short timer in the office. Uh, Brooke Jenkins had given notice. There was already notice for her for her goodbye party. She was out the door in less than a week. And uh, she emailed the rap sheet for Troy McAllister, whose name became known in San Francisco because he was a serial property crime um, uh, felon, uh, drug user, stealing things, uh, you know, but not a violent criminal. At least he hadn't been charged. And he killed two women driving while intoxicated, uh, while fleeing from police on, I believe, New Year's Eve uh, 2020. So this became... uh, one of the hallmark cases in the in the recall of Chesa Boudin, that why was this man out and about to do this horrible thing and kill these two innocent women? Uh, so a week before she left the office, Brooke Jenkins emailed three police reports to her colleague Don Dubain, uh, who also had given notice and also had one foot out the door. The problem here is that there are very clear laws in California that if it's not your case, if you don't have a business with uh, with having a rap sheet, you're not supposed to have it. And to furnish it to someone else who doesn't have any business having it is a crime. It's a misdemeanor. So Brooke Jenkins was not in the division of this case, was not attached to this case, nor was Don Dubain. There was no reason for either of them to have it or to send it. And uh, this unambiguously happened. And it, it appears, I mean, you know, you go through the justice procedure, but like this seems to be on its face a misdemeanor. It's the kind of thing that gets you fired for cause from the office and prosecuted. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not a small deal. I mean, you probably have read stories about police being fired from the department, which, you know, policemen being fired is always a big deal for going through what's known as the CLETS system, which is an acronym. I cannot recall what it stands for, but you're not allowed to go through the CLETS system to check on your, your daughter's boyfriend or your neighbors or things like that. You're not allowed to look up people's rap sheets uh, for your own personal uses. It's only supposed to be for business. And so she was not attached to this case, had no business having this thing, and had no business sending it to Don Dubain. Mm, mm, mm. Wow. And that brings me now to 
what we here in San Francisco know of now regarding Banco Brown and what I think I think many parts of the United States, if not beyond, are beginning to um, see a bit more national traction on this uh, in terms of this this uh, really horrible and disturbing uh, incident, which resulted in the death of a a young person who, anyway, I I just I am still trying to be honest with uh, with you, Joe, and with the listeners. Uh, I am still traumatized by that video and by the behavior of the security guard. And I'm talking now about the security guard who shot and killed Banco Brown, an unarmed trans person, a black person, an unhoused person. Um, and that person, Mr. Banco Brown, was actually retreating at the time he was shot dead by the security guard. We've seen the video. There are statements by the district attorney. And one of the things that troubles me, Joe, and troubles uh, a lot of people, and I'd like you to, to weigh, on, weigh in on this particularly, is the fact that the district attorney, even before this tape was released this week, last week or the week before, made an astounding statement that, for me, uh, as an attorney, I'm looking at that as an ethical issue right there, at the very least, essentially sabotaging the case and saying, oh, no, well, we're not going to press charges because, you know, hey, hey, presto, you know, this is a self-defense case. It's a credible self-defense case. And uh, he was in fear of his life, the security guard. And that's it. Case closed, Joe. Case closed. Well, I'm familiar with what you're talking about. And if that was her, if that was her conclusion, that's her right as the district attorney. What made this a strange event, Omar, is that she didn't close out the case. She dropped the charges uh, under a code that allows them to be refiled. So, you know, you needn't be a lawyer, though you are. You needn't be a lawyer to realize that if you are serious about refiling the case, you don't start making definitive statements about it. And what she had said was that the evidence clearly shows, her term, evidence clearly shows that he acted out of mortal fear and self-defense. So self-defense is a complete defense, as prosecutors call it. It's very hard to think of what would mitigate that. And, you know, this definitely throws a monkey wrench into any potential future prosecution of the case. Now, if you're discharging the case and you think that the case is no good, you should just do that. But uh, Banco Brown's parents, his father and stepmother, uh, told me they met with Brooke Jenkins the very day she made this announcement, March 1st. And Brooke Jenkins gave them the impression that she valued their input that she was looking into it, that the case wasn't where it needed to be, that they were strengthening it up and they might bring charges later. So for her to then make definitive statements about it, you know, that it was a bad case and that the evidence clearly showed that it was self-defense really uh, was gobsmacking for them and is confusing to every legal professional I talk to, every public relations professional, (laughs) every politician, you know, you have to choose your words. Uh, So that was very confusing, very confusing. And really astounding to me, Joe. Um, and I think you meant May first. You you said March, but I know. Did I? Yes, yes, of yeah, course. I I'm meant sure March you meant first. May first. Yeah. Um, the thing is, the other piece of this, and I didn't mention it, and you quite rightly did, and I'm glad you did for the listeners, is that the San Francisco Police Department, at the time she made this statement on May first, um, and went out, and after promising that same day that she'd really look into this case uh, to to Mr. Brown's parents. The San Francisco Police Department are still investigating, or they were still investigating, the case, which is what you're talking about. That that is really unusual for that to even be happening. Um, mm-hmm. um, my question for you is: Are the San Francisco Police continuing to investigate now, or is that closed? Well, you're correct that they were investigating as of May first, but what Brooke Jenkins said also sends a message to the police it sends a message that she doesn't think the case is chargeable. So, you know, the the very clear message is that, you know, don't waste your time on this. You know, I mean, what what are they going to find? What bit of secret evidence are they going to find? And we know that we know what they looked at now because, you know, she's made her definitive statement as of May 15th. And, you know, we've seen all the videos and there were extended conversations with the guard, uh, Mark um, Earl Wayne Anthony and and, uh, Michael Earl Wayne Anthony. And uh, and he's very candid you know, in, in the early discussions, because it's not clear that, that Banco Brown is dead. And, and he talks about various things. Um, 
very conversational. And so I don't know if the police are still looking into it now. It would be surprising to me because there's there's no there there. Uh, the, the DA has definitively said that she will not charge the case. And she all but certainly said that two weeks ago, <laughs> just, you know, uh, without formally closing the door. Now, the, the last thing I did want to bring up is the possibility now, and we've seen in the last 24 hours or so, um, the attorney for the family of Banco Brown, John Burris, who is very well known here in California, and I think probably nationwide in the United States, um, a seasoned litigator and, and uh, attorney, um, John Burris, who represents the family of Banco Brown, and we've seen uh, as well alongside him, uh, either today or yesterday, um, attorney Ben Crump, who is known not just nationally but internationally, um, calling for the California Attorney General, Rob Bonta, to look into the case, to investigate it, and to put forth charges. Um, at this point, as a journalist looking at this, how would you evaluate whether or not that might happen at this point? Because obviously the, the Justice Department, uh, the U.S. Justice Department, Merrick Garland and company are probably not going to be in a position to look at this simply because there aren't any hate crimes implications there, at least as far as we know, based on the uh -huh. evidence submitted. So this would not be fair to federal jurisdiction at all uh, for human right, civil rights violations. It would turn then to the uh, California Attorney General. And the other thing, as I ask you to give your opinion about whether or not you think that uh, perhaps the Attorney General here might look at it, is to also look back on another piece of reporting you did where Brooke Jenkins, again, in my view, played politics uh, and released publicly, and you reported on this, um, a letter um, to the to the AG, Rob Bonta, as to why she wasn't going to charge a police officer in a case um, that, that um, was pretty high profile. So if you can digest that and give uh, the audience um, uh, uh, your view on how you think the matter might go with this case of Banco Brown, as far as Rob Bonta, the Attorney General of the state, is concerned? Sure. I think you're correct that I don't see grounds for the feds to get involved because there's no federal crime here. Uh, if if you could prove animus against Banco Brown as a trans person, then you could do that. If you could prove animus against him as a person of color, then you could do that. But neither of those seems to be the case. This seems to be very directed on uh, the issue at hand. It was a fight that broke out uh, over um, an attempted shoplifting attempt that became very physical very quickly and resulted in, in uh, the guard shooting Banco uh, a minute later. So that's not a federal crime and didn't take place on federal land. Uh, could Rob Bonta take it? He could, but you know everything I've read says that this is a, a real hail mary. You know, like that that really doesn't happen much. Uh, I recall that earlier this year in a game against the Warriors, the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, filed an official protest with the league that would have resulted in them having to replay the last quarter of the game, et cetera, like at a later time. And it's like that never gets accepted. And of course it was denied. And I would say this is probably the same thing. It's probably not going to be taken up by Rob Bonta. Uh, I think John Burris, um, I have no reason not to believe that he's heartfelt in his uh, desire for the, uh, the AG to take this up. Something that is worth noting is that if the AG takes this up and does file criminal charges, that absolutely steamrolls the path for a civil case, which is where he would come in. So so he, not to say that he's self-interested, but that would be beneficial for his case, in addition to, I'm you know assuming, being his heartfelt views. So that's something to keep in mind as well. You also referenced Brooke Jenkins kind of um, politicizing, I guess you could say, uh, the matter of her dropping the charges against uh, Christopher Samayoa, the rookie officer who killed Keita O'Neill, a fleeing uh, carjacking suspect, in... Uh, you know, a very hard to watch, difficult uh, situation where he shot him once through the head, through the window of the cruiser uh, in, in contravening any number of police policies. Uh, it would have been enough for her to drop the case and say, you know, we're not trying this case and, you know, uh, and inform the AG privately of her, her theories, which is that it was uh, politicized by her predecessor, Chase Boudin, that it would have been enough for then the AG to make uh, his own opinion based upon how much credence he gave her complaints 
and you know the facts of the case by leaking the 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 letter she wrote to the media it becomes a, a political football and it taints the judicial process so that that was just unnecessary <laughs> it, it was it was dirty pool <laughs> yeah absolutely i i gotta say one other thing here before wrapping things up joe is for me uh, these decisions particular and both of these decisions but this recent one with Banco Brown, it does send a message. It sends a message to a lot of people, um, whether it's the police, whether it's the general public, whether it's to trans persons, whether it's to black people, whether it's to black trans persons. Now, look, uh, again, I, I'm not, is it, you're a journalist, so I'm not necessarily asking you to um, go beyond your scope as a journalist to, to talk about this. But I have to tell you, this sends a very terrifying message when you look at a videotape and granted there's no audio on there, mm -hmm. but people who watch that tape and it's very difficult to watch, uh, moments of it are very difficult, see that there's only one aggressor, there is only one person who's, who's you know, there's a gun drawn and at one point, uh, Banco Brown is gathering some of the belongings or the things on the ground mm -hmm. and this gun is already out at him. I don't see where the self-defense is. And this is because you talked about this and perhaps you don't see uh, the California attorney general picking this up is likely, very unlikely. But those, th what you see on that video to me demands some action. Now, of course, there's a lot of politics, obviously, and a lot of things in the world. But this is cut and dry to me. Uh, and I'm not asking you to, to necessarily respond to that point. But you watch that video. And there's only one aggressor there, Joe. The claim the guard makes is that Banco uh, repeatedly threatened to stab him during the minute-long confrontation. This claim could not be corroborated by other witnesses on the scene who did hear Banco yelling other things that were less threatening, such as, let me go, I'll fight you, that kind of thing. The question I would also have is, um, if you feel threatened for your life, as the guard has said he did, I don't understand why he lets Banco go at all. You know, this man's threatening to kill me, uh, call the police, uh, that kind of situation. And also, once he gets up, and I don't want to ask you to watch the video again, but once uh, he does release Banco Brown, uh, he doesn't clear off and give him a whole lot of space, even though he said that's what he did in his interviews with the homicide detectives. He's close to him the entire time. And in fact, if you watch him up to the final moments when Banco does, the DA uses the term lunge, but that's that seems a bit much. He, he kind of cocks his fists and spits. And so he kind of like, you know, it's like, a, it's, it's like heading a soccer ball. You know, he never, he never, he's moving backwards while he does it or standing still. Whereas uh, the guard, uh, Anthony, is moving forwards. He's walking towards Banco the entire time. You know, again, this is an adrenaline drenched situation, life or death, all of that. And, and the best decisions were not made. It is confusing to me that if one felt in danger of his life and, and oh, this guy might have a knife, why are you standing within an arm's reach? You have a gun. In fact, he had two guns. I don't understand why he isn't five or six or seven meters away, you know, and then telling him to leave the store. As you noted, he had the gun out. He was very casual with it. He gestures with the gun uh, in, 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 uh, to, to, to ask Banco to leave in the way that, you know, you might uh, shoo, a, shoo someone out of the room with the back of your hands. He's doing that with, with his gun hand, which strikes me as awfully casual display of a firearm. Uh, you're asking about the message that it sends. That's a difficult one. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that the DA needs to be concerned with that. Um, she has to look at the facts of the case, but the messages, a lot of messages have been sent to a lot of people. And uh, the people who feel that Banco's life uh, was devalued have quite an argument. <laughs> you know, a lot of excuses had to be made to come to this conclusion. And uh, the sad fact also is that in the United States of America, the law gives a great deal of leeway to um, people making bad decisions while carrying firearms. We don't know what was in the guard's heart. Maybe he really was in fear for his life. But his bad decision to stand so close and to do other things made this into a situation where he felt he had to shoot the gun. And the law protects that. Very, very true indeed, Joe. Um, Joe, um, can you tell the listeners... Um, where they can find your reporting uh, for Mission Local. Thank you. Um, 
I'm the managing editor at Mission Local, a uh, San Francisco news website, and the address is missionlocal.org. Excellent. And any social media handle that uh, is connected to the publication or to your own uh, handle, if you'd like to give that out too. If you're... Sure. Uh, on Twitter, it's at MLNow, and I am at ESKSF. Joe Eskenazi, thank you very much indeed for your time on this edition of the Political Daily Podcast. Really appreciate having you on. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, and sorry to have to make you discuss this again. No problem. Thank you very much indeed. Don't forget to follow yours truly on Twitter at the popcorn R E E L and on Spoutable S P O U T I B L E dot com forward slash popcorn R E E L. It doesn't happen like we think it does. No one rolls the tanks. No armies meet in pitched battle. It happens quietly, little by little. And because so many think it can't happen, it does happen. Little by little, the rules change. It doesn't seem shocking or sudden. And that's the point. Fewer places to vote, longer lines. Don't worry, they say. We're just improving the system. They hope we won't notice the rules are changing because they lost the last election. They hope we just won't care enough to stop them. They believe they can take America away from us, and we won't even notice. We know who they are. We know what they want. The question is, who are we? Do we let them get away with it, or do we fight? Democracy is on the ballot. Vote while your vote still counts. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. So you just heard Joe Eskenazi before the break, um, the reporter and managing editor of the Mission Local newspaper, the online magazine, news magazine here in San Francisco. And I just want to just talk here for a moment or two about a couple of things. One, when I looked at this video and reluctantly I did, I thought of another case that isn't the same, but it ended up the same way. And I'm thinking of another case here in California, this time in Southern California, from 1991. 15-year-old Latasha Harlins. Latasha Harlins, 15 years old, a black girl, was in a grocery store owned by a Korean female. And there was some kind of scuffle, just as there was in the video, if you dare watch it. And again, I really do... Um, would rather you don't watch it, but again, it's entirely up to you. Um, regarding Banco Brown, I'm talking about. But as in that video, in the situation with Latasha Harlins, there was a scuffle between the Korean grocery store owner, Sundar Ju, and Latasha Harlins, and I think they were wrestling, if I remember this, scuff pulling her bag, her book bag, because the Korean grocer was accusing Latasha Harlins of stealing some orange juice. I think it was Tropicana orange juice or something like that. And apparently what happened was is that she took out the juice from her bag or put the juice, put her book bag on the book on the counter And at the register, she put a book bag down, put the orange juice down on the counter and walked out of the store, walked out of the store. 
And I guess she walked out of the store to just show this Korean store owner, hey, look, you know, I'm not stealing anything. I'm walking out of your store empty handed. I'll even leave my book bag and I will leave the juice right here on the counter. You can go check through my things and see if I've stolen it. Whatever. I, you know, I don't know what the motivation was. And that's that's immaterial, by the way. It's immaterial. The bottom line is, is that she walked out of the store. This is a 15-year-old girl we're talking about. 15. And she walked out of the store. And the Korean store owner pulled out her gun and shot Latasha Hollins in the back of her head. Killing her. By the way, this was caught on video. All of it was caught on store video cameras inside that grocery store. Much the same way that the shooting death of Banco Brown was caught on camera at Walgreens here in San Francisco last month. The reason I bring up Latasha Harlins, dear listener, is because a jury of her peers found her guilty of manslaughter. I forget what what specific count of manslaughter it was, whether it was involuntary, whether it was voluntary, first degree, second degree. I'm not sure. I don't remember that. I'm just doing this from memory now. Okay, and I didn't look up the look at this up again. I'll be very frank with you. The bottom line is the jury found Sundarju guilty of manslaughter. I'll just leave it at that. I forget what count, what degree. In the shooting death, in the killing of the Tasha Hollins. I'd call it an execution. If you shoot someone, and again, this is graphic as you obviously know. I should have put out a warning before I said this. Obviously, if you shoot someone in the back of the head, you are looking to execute them. Anyway, that's another whole nother thing I could get into. But the bottom line, dear listener, is, is that the jury of her peers found her guilty. And what did the judge do when it came to sentencing? She sentenced Sundar Jew to 400 hours of community service and a, I think, $5,000 fine. And said, you know what? You've suffered enough. The fact that you've killed this woman, this young girl, is suffering enough. And so because that should be something traumatic for you, Miss Do, we are going to actually sentence you. I'm going to sentence you to 500 hours of community service and a what $5,000 fine or whatever the fine was. I kid you not. I kid you not. I kid you not. That actually happened. And... That incident happened in Koreatown in Los Angeles. The judge, Judge Collin, I think her name is Joyce Collin, was the judge who sentenced the Korean grocery store owner to no time in prison and 500 hours of community service plus a fine. And you see, this is the thing, dear listener, that I want to get across here and emphasize and repeatedly emphasize is that you have, in one case, a transgender person, black and unhoused, being shot to death by a security guard who's also black, by the way, as we've talked about here. Shot dead, $14.64 of snacks that Banco Brown allegedly stole. And I don't care how many snacks Banco Brown may have had or may not have had. You do not take someone's life over some snacks. And when you look at the video in that situation, the only aggressor on that video is the security guard. Never does Banco Brown 
approach the security guard ever in the video and and start to go at the guard and punch the guard and any of that any of that never happens never happens and when he is backing out of the grocery store he's actually outside the entrance of the grocery store and this guard keeps pursuing him points a gun at him shoots him in his chest I don't care if Banco Brown shouted out he was going to stab the security guard. The security guard clearly sees that there's no knife, no gun, and that Banco Brown is retreating. He's walking backwards out of the store. Why are you going after him with your gun drawn? And your gun is drawn inside the store when Banco Brown, even before the shooting, is picking up some belongings and your gun's already out. If you thought that he was going to stab you, why are you closing in on him? It's what Joe Eskenazi and I were talking about. Certainly they're reporting that Joe did talk about that. Certainly that. You can read the reporting that Joe has done a really good job on. At Mission Local here in San Francisco. Why wasn't. Why wasn't. Why wasn't. I mean. I, I'm just sitting here. And I, I'm just shaking my head. You were in fear of your life. But you kept closing down on him. You kept following him. That doesn't sound like someone who's in fear of their life. And so. What my point is, is that the fact that Banco Brown may or may not have stolen something meant that he had to be killed. That's what the thinking is out here amongst a lot of people, or at least a cross-section of people. Some people in this town and beyond think, think that it is okay to actually execute someone, to take someone's life. Because they may have taken some property. So the property is worth more than a black life. So the property in these people's eyes who would have these views is more important and worth more than a black trans person's life, than a black person's life. And that's the point I'm making in the killing, the execution of Latasha Harlins back in 1991 in Koreatown in Los Angeles. This store owner felt that allegedly taking orange juice and from what the facts are, she didn't steal anything. She had the orange juice in her hand and put it down on the counter and they scuffled over the book bag and she walked out, left the book bag, left the juice, and this store owner shoots her in the back of the head as she's leaving. Again, it's the same kind of case. She's literally walking out of the store, just like Banco Brown was literally walking out of the store. This was 32 years ago this happened. Had this grocery store owner in Koreatown, LA, felt that, you know what, I'm going to just let her go. The Tasha Harlins would be a 47-year-old woman right now, instead of deceased. Black life being taken like this is my point. Black life. Why do you think we say that black lives matter? And every one of us has to keep saying that. And acting accordingly, more importantly. The orange juice in a grocery store to that Korean grocery store owner was worth more 
than the life of Latasha Hollins, a human being, 15 years old. And for me, that's barbarism. You just want to take someone's life. And she wasn't posing any threat. She was walking away from you. Just like Banco Brown. Walking away from the security guard. It's the same kind of case. And it's happened over and over and over and over and over again. I haven't even talked about Jordan Neely yet. I haven't even talked about him yet in this episode. None of these individuals had to die. None of them had to be killed. It is absolutely, absolutely angering to me. And it shows you how a society has failed. The system's working very well because this is what the system was designed to do. The system was designed to do this to us. That's what the issue is. And you can have someone here in San Francisco who, by the way, gives an interview, and I'll play this in a few moments, and actually come very close to justifying the killing of Banco Brown. And by the way, she happens to be an Asian, an Asian woman as well. Here we are in the middle of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We're in the middle of that right now. Right now, as I do this episode, I am wearing one of the t-shirts I designed with the Chinese characters on it that spell out Stop Asian hate. And yet you have one or two people in the Asian community, and I mean here in this case, Korean, Chinese community, Japanese, very, you know, varying communities of that persuasion who have such venom against black people. One who would choose to take the life of a black person. Again, it's only some Asian. I'm not saying every Asian person. And then you've got someone who agrees to be interviewed on camera and actually comes out and... Well, let me just, let me just play it to you. San Francisco resident Diane Yap supports the DA's decision and applauds her for not bowing to political pressure. I really hope that this gets out the message that, um, you know, we actually are going to hold people accountable for things like shoplifting. You can't just willy nilly go in there, shoplift, you know, fight a guard and just walk off scot-free. I agree that it's very unfortunate that a life was lost in this incident, but I also, I feel like DA Jenkins is, you know, using her best judgment. Diane told us she read the 25 page report released by the DA's office. The guard told police he was in a potentially life and death situation because Banco had been aggressive. I, I, th I think it's not just the guard that killed Banco, although the guard did kill Banco. I think the guard represents the system that we're in. Yeah, the guard does represent the system. And I had to play that part as well. Thank goodness. Betty Hughes reporting there from KPIX. And you heard her. You heard the resident. I don't know how she managed to get to this particular resident, but I don't know how many people Betty you approached before uh, they would agree to come on camera to talk about this. But some resident, and I've not looked into who this person is. He's a resident of the city of San Francisco. And, oh, well, I'm glad that D.A. Jenkins stuck to her guns, stuck to her guns, that's just me saying this, stuck to her guns and stood firm. And I mean, really? Really? It's so obvious that this was not a case of self-defense. 
fight a god. He wasn't fighting the god. The god was fighting him. I mean, did she look at the video and see the chokehold the god put on him? And even if he's fighting the god, that means he should be killed? What the hell is wrong with people? See, that's what you have here in this town and other towns and other parts of this country and this world. People willing to justify the killing of someone who is black, who has posed no physical threat or danger or anyone's life in danger. Banco Brown is five foot four, was five foot four. This security guard was over six feet tall and he had two guns. I mean, what else are you willing to rationalize? To that San Francisco resident, what else are you willing to rationalize as long as someone who looks like you is not on the receiving end of that gunshot? What else are you willing to rationalize? And this is how you have a society turn into Nazi Germany. That kind of thinking is exactly what was being justified in Nazi Germany. It's exactly what has been justified many times since with genocides all over the world. It's been exactly what's been justified in dictatorships where you have ordinary people who seemingly are mild-mannered coming out and saying, oh, well, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, shame. It's too bad that that person got executed, but there's a big drug problem here. And so... The drug problem is more important than someone's life. And so someone's got to be done about these drug dealers. Let's just kill them all. I mean, that's the kind of attitude that people in this city, some of them, have here in San Francisco. It's an attitude they have. And when you've got that kind of thinking in your society, that's an extremely dangerous society in which to live. That is an extremely dangerous society in which to live because people like that are as dangerous as the security guard who killed Banco Brown. It's that thinking that is so dangerous. The reporter, Betty, you noted, well, this resident, she's, and I don't want to re- repeat her name again. I don't say her name anymore. Diane, whatever her name is, you know, I'm not going to mention it again. Oh, she read the 25 pages. Well, so did I. And those 25 pages still do not justify D.A. Jenkins' decision not to charge. It is really breathtaking. You really find out who people are when it comes to these things. This is the kind of evil that lurks in people. Oh, well, yeah, you know, you can't just fight a god. But what if the god's the one that's being the aggressor? What if the god's the one who chokes the living daylights out of Banco Brown, who wrestles Banco Brown to the ground, who punches him over and over and over again, and who shoots him when he's retreating out of the store? Oh my God, did you not see those things, San Francisco resident? Did you not see those things? Oh my goodness, what are you? You've become a monster yourself. You've become that monster now, haven't you? You've become that monster now. You're now willing to justify anything when a black person is shot dead. Anything. It's like with what happened with Jordan Neely. You now have... Daniel Penny, a trained Marine who's trained to kill, have Jordan Neely in New York City in a subway car in a headlock for 15 minutes. And he's told he's lifeless. You've got to stop. He's lifeless. He's defecated himself. And he kept the headlock intact. Even when he felt this guy's body being lifeless, the guy was dead and he still had his head, the headlock on him for four minutes of that 15 minutes. Those final four minutes, according to witnesses. And, and there are people now 
who if you go to his freaking GoFundMe page, it's $2 million donated to Daniel Penny and his legal defense. Right on, Daniel. You did a good job today. Daniel, you're a star. Just just evil. This is this is I've said this before, dear listener. This is tantamount to people watching a lynching of a black person and just standing there watching it, getting their rocks off, smiling, taking photographs, postcards, pointing up at the tree where the black body is dangling. White families standing under the tree, posing for pictures. Hey, look what we've got up here in this tree. I mean, this is what the society is. Are you not looking at that? What the country is? What the society is? What it, what it has always been? From the Native Americans being genocided to black people being enslaved to Jim Crow and all the other heinous things that have happened in this society where this white dominated system and culture has been absolutely at a black person's throat and neck from day one. And you've now got people, whether they're Asian, whether they're white, whether there's one or two black folk in there, whether there's some one or two Latinos in there who are now justifying executions of black people? I'm not talking about the piece of garbage who was in the White House for four years. I'm not talking about him. I'm not talking about Ron DeFascist in Florida. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about everyday people. I'm not talking about the fascist Republican Party. I'm talking about people next door, neighbors, people in your neighborhood who are making public comments to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors by telephone saying that, oh, it's okay, the security guard was right to do what he did to Banco Brown. Really? You're not looking at how horrific and terrifying that is? The monster that you've become? And I did an episode on this last week about we are the monsters. And it's exactly true. We are. We are. Again, I talked about Sympathy for the Devil, the Rolling Stones song. I shouted out who killed the Kennedys. Well, let me tell you something. I shouted out who killed Banco Brown, who killed Jordan Neely, who killed Latasha Harlins. And after all, it was you and me. Let's go to our next caller, please. Hello and good afternoon, everybody. Um, I do want to thank uh, President Peskin for putting forth this resolution, and I do hope that it gets unanimous support. And I appreciate his efforts and others uh, on the Board of Supervisors for being tenacious about getting um, justice for Banco Brown. A couple of things I guess I want to say very quickly. First of all, I think that the attorney, the district attorney in this city has, I think, committed uh, the very least ethical uh, violations. Um, talking, uh, torpedoing your case publicly like this is not the way to go. And as someone who is an attorney myself, I know ethically that that is something that's very dubious. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two, um, if we want change in this city, and people who really care about all human beings want change, we're going to have to mobilize and vote out people who operate against the people's best interests, who don't recognize or value all of our lives, who don't value black persons' lives or trans persons' lives or black trans persons' lives. We will have to vote people like Broker Jenkins out of office. It's that simple. And then last but not least, I, I, I am so sorry that this has happened to this young brother, and I want to send my deepest condolences to his family. I really do. Banco Brown should be here with us all. And if we as a society truly cared about old people, Banco Brown would still be alive today. 
I want to thank you very much for the time you've afforded me. Um, and again, I do applaud President Peskin on this resolution and I support it 100%. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. The system killed Banco Brown and the Tusha Harlins and Jordan Neely, and the country did as well. I think that's also very clear. Dear listener, thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. And there are days, this is one of them, when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. How precisely you're going to reconcile yourself to your situation here and how you're going to communicate to the vast, heedless, unthinking, cruel white majority that you are here. I'm terrified at the moral apathy, the death of the heart which is happening in my country. These people have deluded themselves for so long that they really don't think I'm human. I had basis on their conduct, not on what they say. And this means that they have become in themselves moral monsters. I haven't spoken. My name is Allison. Thank you. And I just want to say that I'm against this resolution. I think we need to back for Bank of Brown. We need, it's horrible, horrible tragedy that someone lost their life over shoplifting. But the problem is that shoplifting is so out of control in San Francisco that this was bound to happen at some point because they walk every single day, they get what they want, they walk out and they can't just walk out. They, they have to be obnoxious about it. They have to throw things. I myself have been hit for doing nothing but ringing up a customer and asking her if she wanted to pay for all her stuff. So I'm sorry this guy lost his life. I really am. But I feel like the video isn't showing the whole story. He spit on the guard. And I'm sorry if someone spits on me, my initial reaction probably will be to fight back, to just reflex. You know, and yeah, it's horrible he lost his life. I don't know because there's no audio in the video if the guy tried to stab him or not, but I don't understand why the Board of Supervisors aren't backing the DA. I don't understand why the DA released the tape, why the Board of Supervisors didn't go to the DA privately and ask to look at the tape and see what was going on. But I think the bigger problem here is the habitual shoplifters. This guy was the habitual shoplifter in my store constantly, breaking our cases, stealing the oil of Olay. And again, sorry he lost his life. And I don't know the solution. Maybe you guys can figure it out. But it's wrong to blame the guard. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for your comments. Our next caller, please. Hi, this is Leilani from San Francisco. And it frightens me to hear people talk about it's okay um, for the security guard to shoot somebody over material and property. It's actually, they are, they are actually more dangerous than a shoplifter. These are people who will leave you starving, leave you homeless, aid nothing in community, are greedy, are selfish, who, have, who care nothing about life and then want to stand on a soapbox and feel like they have the high moral ground. It's gross, it's disgusting, and they're actually very dangerous as well. What, that sh- what we all saw in that video was him backing out and that security guard pulling out a gun and shooting him. That's what we all saw. And so I'm not looking for um, DA Brooke Jenkins to do the right thing. I don't think she knows what that is. Because if somebody did that to somebody she cared about, oh, hell, she would be out there demanding justice. So this is about um, 
have a lack of regard for marginalized community, for the trans community, and um, people out there talking about it's okay to shoot people over material things and property are wildly crazy and sick themselves. And we need, we, we, we have to call it what it is. I don't, I understand that things go on in Walgreens and things are being stolen. I understand that. But it is not okay to shoot and murder people over material things, period. I am done with my public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Leilani, for your comments.